Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Welcome. And if you are a college student fresh back from break, we welcome you back and we'll be praying for you as you start your new semester. May that be a good one for you. And uh, I have a number of college students in my own home, so we are cognizant of that prayer need. So we'll lift you up. Anything we can do to help you, let us know. If you would, as you have children, you can do, release them to Sunday school if you'd like to. For the rest of you taking your copy of God's Word, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Special thanks to Alex and the band for leading us and getting us to the point where we're ready to be fed. Let's open the word and do that. We're beginning this last portion of our study through these two wonderful letters. We've titled them God's Plan for a Healthy Church. And in particular, as slack section marks of ministry, Paul's example. And because it's been a few weeks, let's read together, picking up in chapter 12, verse 12, and read to the end of the chapter as we begin to let the Holy Spirit go to work. Look in your copy of God's Word, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you all with perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Verse 13, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I'll not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Verse 16, but be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent, have I? I urged Titus to go and send the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit, walk in the same steps? Verse 19, all this time you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you, actually. It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Verse 20, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come to you, I, find, I may find that you may not be what I wish and I may be found by you to be not what you wish that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over you. And many of those who have sinned in the past have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. <clears throat> As we begin to close that out, we see that at the end of chapter 12, we, if we take chapter 12, verse 12, all the way through the end of the book, if we were going to sum it up in one thing, we'd sum it up in affection. I think we can easily say that as Paul begins his, his closing, and we can kind of see the tenor of that letter, that we understand that Paul loves the church. We understand, if you've been with us, that the church has caused no end of trouble, been very rebellious, and Paul has had to do a number of things and has suffered a lot at their hands. But he has provided a good example for them, and it's hard to quantify the impact of a good example, isn't it? You may... Remember some in your life, perhaps in your walk with the Lord. I hope you've had good examples of your walk in your walk with the Lord. Somebody you can look up to, somebody who has set those uh, standards very high as they followed the Lord. I know I have those folks that I can picture their face in my mind right now. Perhaps in your, in your field, wherever you, uh, wherever you work, you may have people who have done a really good job and become a good example. Years ago, uh, the Communist government of China commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor with the purpose of distorting the facts and presenting him in a bad light. They wanted to discredit the name of this missionary of the gospel, and as the author was doing his research, he was increasingly impressed by Taylor's saintly character 
and godly life, and he found it extremely difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his life, he laid aside his pen, renounced his atheism, and received Jesus as his personal Savior. Whether we realize it or not, our example leaves an impression on others. A study even more close to home, a study not too long ago, disclosed that if both mom and dad attend church regularly, 72% of their children remain faithful. If it's only dad, 55% remain faithful. If it's only mom, 15% remain faithful. If neither attend regularly, only 6% remain faithful. The statistics really speak for themselves. The example of parents and adults is more important than the combined efforts of the church and Sunday school. And of course, we know there's more to that, don't we? We know that people can go to church but not live like it. Kids are quick to pick up on a fraud, aren't they? If you just come to church and then at home, the gospel doesn't penetrate, there's no fabric of Christianity, there's no walk with the Lord, of course, kids pick up on a fraud. But the opposite is also true. You come faithfully as you should and sit under the teaching of the word and be involved. Then at home, the fabric of Christianity is there. It really is the guide for everything you do. Kids recognize the reality too and are willing to embrace uh, Christianity as true as it is. As you think about examples, of course, we began to see some examples of a faithful minister last time we started this section. And regardless of how ministry is redefined and, and it, by individuals in the modern church, I often wonder how many times the Lord will have to point to his word and say to our embarrassment, I know what you thought, but I left you some important examples in those who came before you for you to follow. I think that will be certainly the case. And not the least of these is uh, the one we started with last time, an important mark of ministry, and that is Paul's example of perseverance. Last time we looked at chapter, tw uh, chapter 12, verse 12, and we read, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. And we took a lot of time with the marks of a first century apostle, one that cannot be duplicated, but we saw what those were, and we took a lot of time with that. Uh, but the words that help us understand the heart and example of Paul for us is in the phrase, with all perseverance. False teachers, of course, are concerned about fame and prestige and importance. Paul had many of them in the first century. We still have them today in the church. And that's all driven by pride. But as we look at Paul's example with regard to the work of the church, his concern was humble faithfulness and dedication. He was concerned about doing God's will in the most excellent way possible and not drawing attention to himself. And this is basically his constant attitude with regard to ministry. When it came to his countrymen, when it came to some in the church, certainly the Roman authorities, it's easy to sum up how he was treated. He was persecuted. That didn't impact the way that he performed his ministry. They were hostile to Paul. They hated him. They resented him. They rejected him. His own countrymen whipped him numerous times, and ultimately Rome beheaded him. And so all of that, through all of that ministry, he maintained his faithfulness. And that's bound up in that word perseverance. It's the noun hupomone uh, in the Greek. And it just really means, as we saw last time, to bear up under any circumstance, to remain faithful under difficult times. And that was our first mark in this section, serving as an example uh, from Paul to everybody who follows in ministry, is bearing up and remaining faithful in the service of the ministry. And, and I don't think any minister has had to put up with all that Paul had to put up with, which makes these marks of the ministry great examples for all of us who follow. We will never bump up against, it's unlikely we'll bump up against the difficult times and the hardships that Paul had to endure. So it makes it all the more important that we see this. As you read through the Word of God and you teach it verse by verse and, and word by word, you realize that these are not just things done in academia. 
We're not just figuring out what the sentence means and making sure we understand all of that stuff. When we understand that, we can see that these things were left here for our example, as I mentioned before. I think many times the Lord will have to draw us back and say, look, I know what you did, but this is not the example I left you. You should have been able to pick up on that. So we want to make sure that we do. And in a world where people bail at the first sign of difficulty, certainly inside the church, a little opposition and they leave, or they don't have the time to actually serve, they don't plug in anywhere, it's really important that we point out that Paul remained faithful even under hostility and persecution his whole ministry. And we saw that this is pleasing to the Lord, and we saw that it's, it's important to him because he's one of the direct sources of difficulty that will come in ministry and to teach us to persevere. And we looked at a lot of passages last time, and if you missed that, you can catch up on that. But it seems, according to God's own purposes and his good pleasure, to bring his ministers into testing. And everywhere we look by example and command, we see persevere, 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 endure, work hard, uh, do it faithfully, do it with excitement, do it when you feel like it, do it when you don't, uh, do it when they want to hear it, do it when they don't want to hear it. All those kinds of things are very common phrases throughout the New Testament. And we also saw that persevering through difficulty that comes from the world is also pleasing to God. God's going to bring difficulty on you to test you and purify you. We're also going to see that coming from the world because the world is a system of evil that's hostile against God. So anytime you do ministry, you're in this world that's temporarily Satan's domain. And so we would expect then that the world bring difficulty against a faithful minister if you're being faithfully uh, discharging what the Lord wants you to do. If you're witnessing, if you're living a godly life in front of the world, you should expect some opposition because the world is di uh, diametrically opposed to that. And because the faithful minister is going to reiterate the message of God, which is what we do, what you do as you teach your classes, you reiterate God's message. That message opposes sin. It makes those who love the world very uncomfortable, even in the church, because he reminds the world of the eternal doom on the world of sinners. And many times we see in the world, such were some of you. You used to be this way, but now you're washed, now you're sanctified, now you're purified. So in other words, be different because you used to be that way. So perseverance is part and parcel of ministry and perseverance through God's testing, uh, circumspect life in the middle of a very difficult world, the hardship of ministry and teaching truthfully and fully the word of God, which deals with the souls of men. Perseverance in that area brings about a refinement that's very pleasing to the Lord. So we saw that very clearly, I think, in our last time together. So don't serve half-heartedly. Don't do ministry wondering if it matters. Don't hold back from doing ministry. If you're doing what the Word of God says to do, which is certainly plugging in with your spiritual gifts and ministering, and you're doing it in the way the Word of God has uh, prescribed it, um, and persevere in that, it's going to matter all eternity. The Lord's going to remember all that. And, and we saw the example, of course, last time of the prophets who persevered through hardship. We saw Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The Lord told them it was going to be hard. He told them what they would have to do. And they understood what was going to happen and still did what he said to do. And they knew that there was a reward coming, but it wasn't going to be where they were. They thought it would be maybe some connected to the ministry, thought it would be a great, you know, wonderful ministry. Perhaps as people come out of seminary, they think the ministry is going to be a certain way. And yet the Lord has a plan for the ministry you're going to do that might not match up with your expectations. It doesn't mean that you're not doing what you should do. It means you're doing precisely what you're supposed to do if it lines up with what the Word of God says. And that's what they did. And Jesus, of course, is our example, persevered through death, uh, knowing he would receive the honor due him and would have the, he would have the glory again as he had at the beginning. He'd bring many sons to glory. He did his ministry among people, and he would be killed by their own hands. And the apostles persevered, and we looked at a number of those examples. Certainly Paul is there. Many of them knowing their death would be at the hands of those they ministered to, looking forward to a future reward. And 
and those who have then followed after who are faithful ministers followed these examples. See, this is what this is supposed to look like. And so when we move on to verse 13, we're going to see this next mark of ministry. We have perseverance, and this next one then is Paul's example to us all as selflessness. If you're a note taker, you can find that on the back of your bulletin. Verse 13, read there with me in your copy of God's Word. Open it up because it's very important for you to follow along. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Stop right there. Now we know that the false apostles attacked Paul's ministry. They made it clear to the church that they had received a substandard ministry brought to them by a substandard minister. We looked at all of that several chapters ago. And Paul here then denies all of that. <clears throat> Verse 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, he says, look, you saw the miracles, you saw the signs, you saw the wonders, the mighty acts, you were in awe, you saw that God's power was at work, and they were all done here, you got the full treatment. So how is it then, he says, really is what he's saying, how is it that you can buy into the deception that you had a substandard ministry from a mediocre apostle? You weren't cheated. And, and all the churches Paul founded were founded with the gospel, God's truth, and God's power. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, as he talked, about, talked to them in a letter form about how he came to them, he said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Verse 4, and my message and my preaching, marked this, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. I didn't try to convince you that I was a great person. I came and let the Lord reveal himself to you in power. And that verified what I had to say. We looked at all of that. So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So you received everything you were supposed to receive, and in every place Paul did his ministry, they received it. The thing about Corinth was they just didn't get a bill. That's the only thing they didn't get. They, he took care of all of the things he was supposed to do. He planted the church. They saw the power. It verified the speaker and the message, but they just didn't have to support him. You got the signs, you got the wonders, you got the truth. I came, I didn't preach myself or the wisdom of man. I preached the truth of the gospel to you. And the only thing you didn't get was a bill. Paul had determined from the start not to burden the Corinthians with paying his support and the support of those who traveled with him because that had been an issue here for a long time. The false teachers had pushed some gossip since they've arrived. Number one, Paul didn't really love the church like he loved other churches or he would take support from them. And of course, that's to pacify their own conscience as they built the church out of everything they could build the church out of, which is still going on today. But Paul wouldn't take any money for his ministry, so they must, he might not love the church, number two. Or he's a substandard teacher, so he's not taking any money. And that, that proves that he, doesn't, he knows he's not worth much. And that's what they were saying. And that played on the grumbling that was already in place at Corinth about taking care of Paul's needs. Remember in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and then 11 through 15, and we, we looked at that a couple years ago. As he writes about this, and he, take, he talks about the policies that should be in place inside the church, he says this. As he talks about uh, the you know, churches supporting those who minister among them, verse 6 says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? In other words, I've continued to work, and so has Barnabas, to support the ministry we did among you. Are we the only ones that don't have the right? What's the answer? No, of course, we have the right to take support. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Is it? That's a rhetorical question. No, it's not. If others share the right over you, do we, we, do we not more? Nevertheless, 
We did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. We endure all things, what? Shortness of what's needed, perhaps food, clothing, things that they would need in the, in the work of the ministry. We endure those things so they won't cause a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share of the altar? This is common knowledge. Even if you think back, he says to the Jews, on the history of their people, those who ministered to them were able to be supported by that ministry. So the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But he says, I have used none of these things and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. In other words, as he gives the instruction and the policy of what should go on in the church, he's not saying, he says, I'm not telling you this so you'll start doing it because I've chosen not to take it. There were already grumblings about taking care of Paul's needs and he knew that this would cause a stumbling block, a hindrance. And so the false teachers compounded that, and so Paul wasn't afraid to take support. He just knew it would cause a stumbling block for some. And it appears, too, in this case, he also wanted to avoid the stigma that was attached to the false teachers who were there that were taking all the money they could get and milking the church and, and, as, and everybody as much as they could. And, and it's always the case with a faithful teacher that they can easily get lumped in together with false teachers uh, in this respect that, okay, well, we're paying him. He must love money. And he made that clear, even though he had a right to be supported, and he was by other churches. In fact, we see in 2 Corinthians eleven seven, did I commit a sin humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Can you imagine that they, they, they were saying that that was some kind of sinfulness? Of course it's not a sin. I robbed other churches, he said, by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So obviously, this is an ongoing issue. And it's very easy to read through that passage and not think about that. But other churches supported him, so he didn't have to ask anything from the Corinthians. When I was present with you, he said... And I was in need. And that's important to recognize because we've looked at all that type of need that he had on his ministry road, right? He didn't have enough cl clothing. He didn't have enough food. Uh, there were many things that weren't provided for him. He had that need in Corinth, but he didn't ask them for any of that. And we talked about the suffering that he went through doing the ministry, times where he didn't have even the basics. And he never brought it up. He said twice he said that in the letters. I didn't bring that up with you. I didn't tell you that I had need. In everything, he said, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. And so it's an important point. He said, I haven't changed anything. I'm going to continue to do this. I'm not going to change any of those policies. As we said before, that's an example to us of selflessness. Paul had some needs, but he, the church needs were greater. He refused the right to be supported because he didn't want anyone to stumble over it. And he didn't want to be the subject of harsh criticism. And, and you can't hardly blame him for that. And in this case, perhaps because he didn't want to get lumped in with false teachers who really care only about the money. Which is one of the reasons why, and we're going to go through First and Second Timothy and, and Titus and First and Second Thessalonians after this study. But one of, the, one of the things that qualifies a guy to be an elder of a church in First Timothy chapter 3 is the fact that he's not a lover of money. So the church has to evaluate that. Is that what he's in there for? And I think if a lot of churches understood that very carefully, they would kick these false teachers out on their ear. So this is an example of Paul's selflessness. He refused the right to be supported because he didn't want anybody to stumble over. And that was really the case. So he was willing to go without in order to make sure none of these things happened. His attitude towards them was one of selflessness. He never wanted anything from them except their love. 
He never asked them for anything. He went without until somebody from the outside brought him some support. His attitude towards himself was he was willing to be a, to be a sacrifice for their sake. So he says, now look back at verse 13, if you would. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? So that's not inferior at all, is it? You got everything that you were supposed to get, except you didn't have a bill of support. And then he says this, forgive me this wrong. Can you imagine him having to say that? I mean, you got everything but the bill, please forgive me. He's doing everything he can do to get through to them, even using some sarcasm, which is what we see right there. Now look at verse 14. Will you do that? 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I'll not be a burden to you, for I don't seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Let's stop right there. In other words, I'm not going to change anything. I'm coming this third time, and we've looked at all of this. First time he came, we saw that recorded in Acts 18. He came to Corinth, his second missionary journey. He stops there. He preached the gospel. He planted the church, and he stays there about 18 months or so. His second trip, we saw referred to in 2 Corinthians 2.1, was a painful, sorrowful visit referred to there, and, and things were so messed up at the church, he felt he had to go there, and when he left, he, wasn't, he didn't feel any better. In fact, he was so depressed, he couldn't do any ministry anywhere else for a while. Remember, we looked at all of that. He found himself in sorrow, and he's going to refer to it again as we move on into chapter 13. In verse 2, he'll say, I have previously said when present the second time. So we know he's already been and come back. And he lets them know, I'm coming this third time. And he makes it clear, perhaps, to avoid any argument, any misunderstanding, and to keep the false teachers from gaining any ground and keeping them at bay. He says, listen, I'm not going to be a burden to you. Nothing's going to change. I'm not going to take any support. That's his policy, declining money for personal needs. That's going to remain in place. Then mark this. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. That's really good, isn't it? If you, if you had to take a little snapshot and you want to kind of snap it into your ministry, that would be a good one. It's just so beautiful. And that's our third example from Paul on our next mark of ministry that is Paul's example to us, and that's devotion. Paul gives us the example of bearing up and remaining faithful in the service of the ministry, he, even when it's hard and people are hard on him. And Paul gives us the example of selflessness, even to the point of denying the basic needs that he has in order not to offend and be made, look like the, be made to look like the false teachers. And number three, Paul's devoted to the church. In other words, he's not out for what they can give him. He's not looking for something they have. He just wanted them. He wanted them for the kingdom. He wanted them for God. He wanted them for their lives to be in obedience to what the Lord would have so they could have the blessing that comes from that. He wanted their lives for righteousness and holiness. He wanted their lives for the glory of God because they were supposed to live for that glory. And he's made it clear throughout all those letters over and over again. We see that constantly. And when he arrives, he's still speaking the same thing and he's still seeking their friendship and he wants to build up his relationship with them. He's devoted to their good. And he's not seeking what they have or what they can do. He's so devoted to them. And this is probably in stark contrast likely to the false teachers who are always seeking what the church has and bilking them out of as much as possible, and that hasn't changed at all even today. Paul's the opposite of that. And, and beloved, when you, at, when you think about this, what is the analogy he uses to help them understand his attitude towards them? Look at the last part of verse 14. Children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He, he's devoted to them as a parent should be to their child. 
And to get to the essence of that, it says to save up. Thosorizo, present active infinitive. And I think if you're a parent, you can understand this very well. And we're going we're gonna to connect this and understand how this is supposed to go. But with an infinitive, there's no limit to persons or number. And present active is the tense and voice of reality. So the idea here is this. And the church can understand this even from a natural world. It is the parent's responsibility to provide for their children. And it's not like a one and done deal. And the relationship continues. It's far from over. There's much that he has to give. Just like as your child grows, you're not one and done at five. You're not done at three. You're not done at seven. There's more that they need, and you're going to sculpt that ministry to them in a way that produces disciples. That ministry is far from over. Much more he has to give. And it, but not so that the parent can get something, but so the parent can provide something. See, And it's just a simple, universal axiom. Parents are to take care of their children. And that should be their joyous privilege. That's the whole sense of this passage. It should never be construed as reluctant. It should never be construed as manipulative. Whenever a parent, whatever a parent can do, they should continually do. That's the idea there of the infinite. With joy, there's no limit to that. And devotion, because that's how, mark it, the Lord deals with you, isn't it? And so we reflect that with our children. And like the Corinthian church, where uh, which has been deceived by false teachers and has not experienced this devotion from them, some children grow up in households where they don't get to experience this simple relationship. And for both the church and, of course, the individual, it's very hard to adjust to the right kind of relationship after you've started with the wrong kind. And if you're in foster care, you understand this very clearly, don't you? And, and Paul even gives us an example of what proper parenting looks like. In verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls so it even gets deeper and this is just a wonderful statement in the original language but it's also that fourth mark paul joyfully poured himself out for the ministry and so should every minister i'll most gladly spend and be expended for your souls and this statement illustrates practically everything we've pointed out as an example from paul up until this point he illustrates with this perseverance they didn't appreciate what he did. They persecuted him constantly and talked badly about him, but it didn't stop him from pouring out these things. His selflessness, his devotion. He points out what every godly father wants his children to understand. There's nothing that he would not do, and there's not a limit to what he will not give for righteousness' sake, for the sake of their children, to bring them up to know Christ. Nothing. You, you discipline, you correct, you, you corporately punish, you reward, you, you extol them, you you encourage them, you bless them, you give good gifts to them. It all is a part of creating a final product. And there's not a limit to that, see? John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, which is an older book, but an important read if you've never read it. He says this, quote, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter, and perhaps just one, and they'd be willing to live for them and die for them. He goes on to say, the people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who've mastered many things, but who've been mastered by one great thing, end quote. To joyfully pour himself out for the ministry was one of the important examples Paul modeled, and it's such a beautiful way to say it, isn't it? I will most gladly, superlative adjective, we'd say it today, I'm thrilled to do it. That's how we'd say it. I, I would, it would be my great joy to do this. And the words spend and be expended 
and verbs that deal with the future. Spend is what you bring with intent to the future relationship. In other words, as you come into the ministry, you know there's stuff you want to invest. You, you've, the Lord's equipped you, and you're going to invest these things, and you're fully invested. It's going to be everything. You're going to give everything. And then to be expended is what the future may take out of you. You're willing for both. You're bringing what you can bring, and then you're okay with what it's going to take out of you, and it's going to take everything out of you. One is future active, one's future passive. You're bringing this actively to the table, and this is what you want to invest, and the Lord's equipped you that way. And future passive is the ministry is going to extract this from you, and you're willing for both, see. No matter what the cost, there's no reserves. Dads don't get to the point, and then they say, okay, that's too much effort. I'm done. This is all I want to do after that. You're too much trouble. And a child should never have to think of that. That's the parental child illustration that comes with the ministry of the church, see. Child should never have to think, that's it. There's been too much. See. And Paul uses this as an example. I'll hold nothing in reserve. Then he says, for your souls. For the innermost spiritual needs. Prepare them for the kingdom. To teach them about God. To help them walk in obedience. He'll do the hard stuff to help them live lives for righteousness and holiness. He wants them to understand that their life is for the glory of God. The same thing that you want to instill in your children. And you're doing it the way the scriptures prescribed it to make it happen. And there's no reserve. There's limit. No limit. Person or number. Paul's letter to the Romans that we studied through a number of years ago, he said, Romans chapter 9 verse 3, he said, um, For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. It's easy to read that passage and not even think about what he just said, but you understand what he's saying, right? He would almost be willing to spend his salvation if it could get somebody else saved. That's an, incredible, that's an incredible statement, isn't it? For my brethren, for the Jews that hadn't come to faith, Paul says if he could, which he can't because his faith was not ever his, right? He was held by the Lord. He was elected and, and placed in securely, and he can't get rid of his faith and unload it, even though he said, I would gladly spend my eternity in hell if I could make sure my countrymen knew Christ. That's commitment, isn't it? In Philippians, he said, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. In other words, if bringing the gospel to you costs me my life, that's okay. See, that, that's the commitment level we're talking about. See, and that's not some extra super Christian. That's normal Christianity in ministry. That's what this is all about, see? These are examples of ministry and the attitude you bring conformity to the word what does the word say what does it mean by what it says how does that apply to me here it is see just very simple principles that become the marks of your desire to do ministry and it's so intricately connected so because it's so personal as with being a parent and isn't that just what jesus did too i mean we have that example of course as our primary one his disciples are arguing over as they're walking who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, who gets to set in the most important seats, and, and who's most important and all of that. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus says, calling them to himself, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. You know how the world works, right? Everybody has a boss, and everybody has a power thing going on, and they want to make sure they lord it over the people who are below them. That's how, that, that's how the world works. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you 
shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Mark this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, joyfully pouring himself out for the ministry, no reserves, gladly spent and expended. Right? That's what that looks like. Now look at the end of verse 15 as we get ready to wrap up. This is a very sad statement. He says this. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul says, is is that how it's always going to be? If there are no reserves and he joyfully pours himself out for them, will they keep responding in the wrong way? And I think that's an important question. And certainly it is the situation in many ministries even now. It's a question about the fundamental nature of the relationship between those who are leading and those who are being led. Will it continually be the more he gives, the less they love? And that can certainly be the case for the modern minister. And I, I've known many friends who've been in churches just like that. The more they work and the harder they work and the more they invest, the less they're loved. And there's this undercurrent that just like in Corinth where it's always just stirring everything up. And no matter what that person does, it's never enough. And the question's filled with emotion, isn't it? I mean, you can see his heart again, just like it was at the beginning of this letter. But it isn't fatalistic, and he isn't caught up in the answer, and it's not going to stop him from doing the work of a faithful minister and being an example, because look at verse 16. What does he say? Be that as it may. Isn't that great? He doesn't say, oh, forget it. You, don't e- you guys don't even like me, let alone respond to me. I'm out. He doesn't say that. Be that as it may. And there's certainly more here that we can finish today, but let's look at the first part. However they may react to him, that's the issue. Um, However they may receive him when he comes, no matter how they may lack appreciation for what he's done for them, no matter that they may not realize his love for them. And and again, you can make a great analogy to children, right? Uh, A true father's raising a child, and someday they may understand why you're doing what you're doing, right? Why you're helping them, why you're chastening them, why you're corporately punishing them, why you're, uh, you know, doing the things that make sometimes their life difficult. They might not like it. You hope that they'll be mature enough at some point to say, hey, you really love me enough to do this, see? But be that as it may, whatever, whatever occurs, I'm going to continue to do it because I'm not doing it for that. I'm not doing it for a, a pat on the back that says, hey, we really appreciate what you're doing. Because most of the time, if somebody's in disobedience, they don't appreciate you calling them out. In fact, if they wouldn't be in disobedience if they weren't walking away from the Lord. And when they're walking away from the Lord, you can't expect a spiritual answer, can you? So be that as it may, however it works out, someday you're going to understand. But it isn't based on their comprehension and their appreciation at this point. Paul makes it clear. He says, I'll still be the same. That's amazing, isn't it? Be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. It connects well with Paul's first example of perseverance, doesn't it? However it's going to be, I'm still going to persevere. In spite of their lack of appreciation, he says in verse 16, be that as it may, I did not burden you. In other words, not only am I not going to take support from you, I didn't drag you through all of that either. I'm not going to beat you up about all the way that you responded to me. I'm not going to keep rehashing all the stuff that you said about me. I'm not going to live back there. However it is, I'm still going to do what I'm supposed to do. Nothing's going to change. I was still not a burden to you. Whatever your attitude continues to be, mine's not going to change. Even if their love grew less, his would not. He wouldn't ask anything from them. He was going to come with another visit. We saw Paul forecasting perhaps how that might come out there at the end of this chapter. We'll get to that. But he wasn't asking them for anything. He was coming for another visit, and he was doing it for their eternal benefit. We pointed out at the beginning, 
it's really hard to quantify the impact of a good example. But doing ministry like God wants it done allows His Holy Spirit to go to work and ministry be done in power. Isn't quantified by big numbers. We never see that in the New Testament. Paul wasn't popular during his day, was he? I mean, it would seem like he would have been. I mean, if it was doing all the right things was the key to huge numbers in a church, then Paul would have had the biggest church, right? But that's not how it was. It's not quantified by fancy, slick shows and performances where everybody feels good when they walk out. It's not quantified by that. There's no power there. And we looked at all that as, as it relates to false teachers. It's quantified in eternity, isn't it? Where the Lord keeps track of those who call themselves his servants, and he keeps track of what they do. And where the deeds and the work will be put on display for all to see for all eternity. But if we strive to follow those examples, regardless of perhaps how it may go from time to time, see, how it may be in some season or another as you do the work of the ministry, if we're following these examples, we can be sure of a good report where it really matters. See. Paul gives us the example of persevering. Paul gives us the example of selflessness, even to the point of denying his basic needs in order not to offend or to be made to look like false teachers. And Paul gives us the example of devotion to the church, a love of to be spent and expended for their joy and for their benefit, like a parent does for a child. Paul gives us the example of joyfully pouring himself out and being used up. And then this last one for today, number five, Paul gives us the example of humble faithfulness no matter be that as it may. That's just so beautiful and humbling at the same time, isn't it? There's so many little snapshots that can just define your ministry very clearly and very well if we could understand that and realize that's not some other level of minister. That is a true minister. If you're going to minister, that's what it's going to look like. See, and That's a blessing, and I hope it's instructive for you. It's, um, it's hard. I don't... I'm not what, I don't want what's yours, I want you. What a great way to express that. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time, and uh, I'll just give the Lord this time. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the joy of the fellowship. We thank you for the songs that recognize your, your holiness and your sovereignty and, and your power and your nature, attributes, true songs that help us remember that we are the beneficiaries by your grace of all these things. And Lord, the time that we can spend in prayer and the time we can spend giving of what you've given to us materially so that we recognize you own all of that. And then as we get to this time where we get into the word, we, we recognize that you give us these examples, not just so we can say, oh, nice, and move on as if we've just read it and taken it in, but really to understand the nature of the person who's saying it and how it worked out and then letting that be our model. How much less would be the rollover in the pulpit and in the Sunday school and in the small group if we understood that these are, our, these are our marks. Loving like that, encouraging people like that, sticking with it regardless of, of whether or not it's reciprocated. These are marks of a true minister. These are, these are the marks where we'll be sure that when we come to the end and the Lord looks over that, we will well be well-pleasing in his sight because these are the examples he's left for us. 
And so, Father, help us to be a church like that. Help us to be a church who examines what the Word says, what it means by what it says, and then whether it's instructive or corrective, information, direction, praise, submission, repentance, all these kinds of things, Father. Help us to be churches, a church that responds by, because we're individuals who respond. So let your word come alive as it is in our own hearts. Do the work it needs to do, convicting us of sin, wherever that might be, and all of our self-justification of why we do what we do. Instead, bring us in line with what we see here. Help us to see how to fix that, and by your Holy Spirit, do that very thing. We thank you for this time together, for the joy it is to be one another's company. We give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.